Hello, and welcome to Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts. On this episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking about the government shutdown. We're in uncharted territory as the current government shutdown became the longest in U.S. history on January 12, after surpassing the 21-day shutdown in 1995. Dave Hebert, professor of economics at Aquinas College here in Grand Rapids, sits down with Acton's own Tyler Grunendahl to discuss the basics of government shutdowns. What exactly does it mean when the government shuts down and what effects so far has it had on individuals and businesses? Afterwards, you'll be hearing a conversation on community revitalization with Ashanti Bryant, the director of education at Amplify GR, a nonprofit organization dedicated to bringing better education, economic opportunities, safety, and housing throughout several neighborhoods in Grand Rapids. If you're interested in hearing more about this topic, be sure to join us at the Acton Institute on January 24. To hear Ashanti speak more about Amplify GR and tackling issues such as poverty, high crime, and failing schools, you can register at acton.org events. I also have just one last announcement before we jump into the episode. Very soon, this podcast will go through a rename, changing from Radio Free Acton to Acton Line. That's two words, Acton Line. As this podcast grows and we move farther into the new year, we wanted to give it a new name and bright cover. Be on the lookout for the change. If you are already subscribed, you will not need to resubscribe. All of our older episodes will be there as always. And of course, if you are not currently subscribed, you can do so today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of your other favorite podcast directories. Hello, my name is Tyler Grunendahl. I'm the Foundation Relations Coordinator here at the Act Institute, and with me is uh, Professor Dave Hebert. Hey, thanks, Tyler. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the government shutdown. Yeah. So, Dave, you're a professor of economics. What is the economic impact that a government shutdown has? Yeah, so a government shutdown is basically a period where Congress has basically approved the president to spend a certain number of dollars on certain tasks, but the government has essentially run out of approved money that they're allowed to spend. So every year or every two years, depending on certain political wins and everything, Congress will pass what's called a budget resolution. And the idea behind the budget resolution is that it's this big document that has a list of facts and figures and and things that Congress wants the president to spend money on. And it has certain dollar figures that say, you know, this is how much you are allowed or expected to spend uh, on these things. And it's important to note that the president is required by law to spend those dollars on those projects, right? He can't unilaterally decide not to. He has to do it. Now, he has some discretion over the particulars of how that money is going to be spent, but it has to be spent in the ways that Congress has designated. What happens during a shutdown is basically we've hit sort of a limit on the number of dollars that Congress has allowed the president to spend without fulfilling all of the obligations that Congress has required the president to fulfill. So it's sort of like saying, you know, if your mom gave you $5 for lunch, knowing that lunch was going to cost $6, then, you know, you go to school, if you come home hungry, your mom's going to be mad at you for not spending the money on lunch. But if you spend $6, your mom will be mad at you for spending more money than she approved. (laughs) So it's one of those things where Congress has sort of caused this problem to exist, and they're the only ones that can fix it. 
but they are kind of refusing to fix it. But there's some other interesting side notes that we can get into with the president and his approval process as well. Absolutely. Now, part of the concern that President Trump has is that the budget they want to pass doesn't contain funding for a border wall or a steel fence or some kind of boundary at the southern border. Do you think that's the reason why Democrats are holding it up because they don't want any kind of funding appropriated to it? Well, I think they tried, or maybe it was the Republicans prior to this congressional session. I think they tried to pass one with like two and a half billion dollars for funding for a wall, and the president refused that. I see. Um, so I think there's scope for compromise on that issue, whether or not the House Democrats are, are going to be willing to do that now that they actually have a lot more authority will remain to be seen. Um, it seems like they're not going to, but it's really a situation where two or three people need to sit down and come to some sort of agreement. And so far, they haven't. Do you think that's going to be more likely to happen the longer this goes on? Political pressure or, you know, we talked a little about the economic impact, but the shutdown is really impacting a lot of people's lives right now. And I yeah. think that's discussed enough. No, it's not. I mean, there are a lot of people whose lives are going to be impacted you know, very severely by this. One aspect of this is, you know, one one thing that gets played up a lot is how the federal employees who are uh, currently not at work, how they're all going to get back pay for the time that they should have been working but weren't. Mm -hmm. and, and that's true. So if you're a federal employee, you know, this isn't, this is certainly an inconvenience because you're not getting, you know, your, your paychecks deposited into your account. But you're going to get that money back, you know, as soon as the government reopens. We've seen this with every government shutdown at least over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. But for contract workers like janitors who clean the Smithsonian or security staff at certain national monuments, you know, they're not going to get that pay. And that is going to impact their lives, you know, severely. We've seen articles come out about how furloughed contract workers in D.C. are taking second jobs, working extra hours, trying to make enough money to make ends meet in the interim period. And these second jobs don't pay as much as their primary jobs do. Mm -hmm. And so there is some some real hardship that's going to be felt, especially right after the Christmas season when people are spending a lot of money that uh, they expect to be able to pay off their credit card bills. It's, it's going to be hard for a lot of people. Absolutely. And part of the fact that they're not working at a much less severe level, you know, you can't enjoy the Smithsonian because it's closed. Rangers aren't working in national parks. It's a much lesser extent than not having money to pay your rent or something but it still is impacting what other people are able to enjoy that their taxes are supporting. Yeah. I mean, imagine if you were a family and you took your your kids, your wife and kids to Washington, D.C. to see the monuments and to see the Smithsonian. And then, you know, you've been planning for this trip for months or even a year. And then you get there and you can't do any of that. You know, that yeah. would be, that'd be a huge <laughs> letdown for everyone. One of the interesting things about the shutdown to me is that, you know, there's still taxes are still being collected. There's still money going into the federal coffers. Yeah. But as you said, they don't have authority to spend because there's not a budget set to spend it. Right. But the money exists. It's like it's not in the hands of the taxpayers. It's already been taken away. Right. I think you're exactly right. So it's one of those, you know, eternal questions that uh, people ask a lot is, given that my tax, my money is being taken away in taxes, is it better to get something for it or to get nothing for it? And that's a big question. You know, the IRS is still operating. Uh, I checked my paycheck and FICA still <laughs> took a big chunk out of it. Um, and 20 some odd or 30 percent of government is, is supposedly shut down right now really like american taxpayers are are paying the same number of dollars that we've always paid and we're getting less out of it than we used to mm -hmm. until the president and congress sit down and sign some sort of agreement so that's a very to me a very damaging aspect of this is 
is it undermines a lot of the credibility that government might have. And Absolutely. Regardless of, of belief of the role of government or whether government's big or not, we probably want it to be a credible organization rather than like a non-credible or an incredible organization, right? I would want them to have a good reputation for paying their bills on time. We can quibble about, you know, what they should spend their money on, but given that they make a promise, well, they should fulfill their promises. You touched on something a little bit ago. We talked about how only 20 to 30 percent of the government is shut down. Yeah. We've all been calling it a, a shutdown, but right. huge aspects of the government are still operating just the same. Yep. The military entitlement spending through Medicare or social security, mm-hmm. all those payments are still operating. So when we say government shutdown, it's kind of a misnomer. Yeah. Cause absolutely. the government isn't shut down. Just no. some aspects of it are not. Right. Some working. aspects are, are exactly some aspects are not currently operating um, or they're operating on limited uh, basis. But it's not the case that, you know, all federal employees are just sitting at home with their twiddling their thumbs and everything. They're just some people aren't working right now. And a lot of people in D.C. are, you know, all the congressional staffers, I believe, are still at work today, uh, despite the government shutdown. And this kind of gets at something that I find really interesting about the American public is that we simultaneously care way too much about politics and also care way too little, right? So we care too much in the sense that we let it just ruin our day. If we hear something on NPR or Mm -hmm. Fox News or anything like that, like we get really upset about something. And if you dig deeper, when this is where we don't care enough to dig beyond, you know, the surface level of like Twitter, right? If you dig deeper, it's actually not nearly as big a deal as you might think. So you see the headline, government shut down. It's like, well, okay, let's take stock and see how everyone's lives have proceeded over the last 30 days. I bet that almost everyone notices no difference. We care a lot because we obviously get worked up about these things, but we care very little in the sense that we don't really investigate any further. That's true. It's all very service level understanding without really delving into it. Right. And that has a lot of problems. Yeah. And we let it ruin our day, too. Like, that's the other thing. <laughs> that's absolutely true. When your happiness is solely dependent on whatever's happening in a political sphere. Yeah. Well, at least whatever you hear is happening in the political right. sphere. Right. <laughs> whatever you perceive to be happening. <laughs> right. Whether or not it actually is. Yeah. But even with um, only 20 to 30 percent of the federal government shut down, it still is having an impact even outside of the stuff we already mentioned. Yeah. I've been seeing an article shared around there's some federal agency. I don't know what it is. But it has to approve any new beer labels, yeah. like any cans or bottles of beer. The label specifically mm-hmm. has to be approved by this regulator, the design, everything, yeah. before it can go out. Yep. And we're entering, I think, the third week of the shutdown. Mm-hmm. Craft beer is a growing industry in the United States, especially here in Grand Rapids. Yeah, It's very absolutely. prominent here, mm-hmm. and new beers come out all the time. Yep. So at a very mundane level, because the federal government is involved in so many things economically and regulatorily, we're getting a situation where people aren't able to provide value to others through their work. Yeah. Even if it's just making beer. Yeah. It's the wildest thing. I mean, the, so the, the bureau that you're talking about is the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, and they're operating at a limited capacity right now if they're not outright shut down. And so you're right. They have to approve beer labels, but they also have to approve beer recipes as well. I didn't know that. Yeah. So there's a lot more involved in, in making beer than you might think. Really, there's beers that have been, have applied for permission to be made labels that have been designed and have applied for permission to be printed and put on bottles and everything and distributed to people. And those are all being held up primarily. It seems because some people want to see a wall along the Southern border between the U S and Mexico (laughs) and other people don't. 
right? And and that's a weird thing that that we might not ever have been aware of if the government hadn't shut down. It is remarkable to see how many things and how many aspects of our daily lives government is actually involved in. It is. And even with just a partial impact, the negative consequence it can have purely because it's already involved in so many things. Right. It's pretty dramatic. Yeah, it's amazing. One aspect that I think is is important to think about is what does this government shutdown actually kind of mean? Like what's going on? What can we expect in the future? You know, this isn't the first time the government has shut down in in my lifetime, and I'm only 31, right? So it's not the case that this is something that's new or anything like that. Um, So, you know, a lot of people get really excited about government shutdowns. So if you've watched Parks and Rec, uh, you know, like Ron Swanson would probably be smiling right now because, you know, the government's shut down, ha, 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 right? Uh, But that's, it seems like an odd thing to celebrate, at least to me, because it's not the case that this shutdown or this, you know, this is not actually limiting government, right? In, right. in the minds of people who believe or, or champion limited government and, and free markets, a government shutdown might sound like a temporary reprieve from this onerous and overbearing thing called government, right? Yeah. But really all that's happened is we've just kind of paused it. We haven't changed the responsibilities that government has assumed for itself. We haven't changed the underlying structures of production that everyone sort of relies on. We've just kind of said, hey, we're not going to do this right now. And that's kind of a problem. It gets at this mentality that a lot of free market thinkers have between sort of starving the beast, where the beast is government, obviously, right? Leviathan. Uh, Yeah, the Leviathan, right? Starving Leviathan of, of resources, which would be cutting the budget or limiting their ability to spend, and then starving Leviathan of responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. And in a world where government comprises something on the order of 40% of all of GDP, which is just like, think about that for a second. Government spending is 40% of American or U.S. annual GDP. Wow. That's staggering. It is. So in a world where government has assumed the responsibility for 40% of all economic activity in the United States... When they stop spending, that has real effects. Like, mm-hmm. that's a real big thing. You know, if you and I decided to stop spending, like, you know, who cares, right? Nothing, nothing, nothing would happen. Nothing would happen. <laughs> but when something, an entity that spends 40% of all of GDP stops spending or cuts its spending, that does have effects. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really touch on their responsibilities, right? Government can't, or they can, but they haven't at least, they haven't given up responsibilities due to their lack of resources. You know, you and I, if we didn't have the resources to undertake something, well, we might say, like, okay, I'm not going to do that. I don't have the ability to do that. Government hasn't done that. So all we're seeing right now is a temporary decrease in spending with no decrease in responsibility, no decrease in expectations on the part of business owners and business entrepreneurs of changing responsibility. And so really, it's just a big holding pattern for the entire economy. Well, still the negative effects of taxation because it's still being taken away, right. like I we're mean, saying, with none of the benefits of right. it. Right, exactly. So realistically, you know, a lot of people might say, hey, this government shutdown is painful in the short run, but it might cause, you know, good things in the long run. It's like, no, <laughs> it's not. It's just going to go back to what it was before, right? It's just a temporary pain. And that's all it is. But there's really, from the American taxpayer's perspective, there's no benefit. There's no upside to this whatsoever. It's pure cost. And frankly, I think we need to see all three members or all three chambers, the president, the Senate, and the House, they need to sit down and they need to get this figured out as fast as possible. 
Well, thanks for coming by to talk about the government shutdown today, Dave. I think we hashed out a couple things. Hopefully it ends before the end of February, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. How does community revitalization work and what does it require? Tackling such complex, deeply rooted issues as intergenerational poverty, dangerous environments, high crime, and failing schools presents many challenges. Join us at the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan on January 24 to hear how the purpose-built communities model fosters a coordinated holistic approach based on quality and focused on sustainability. To register, visit acton.org events. Today, we're happy to have with us on the podcast Ashanti Bryant, who is the Education Director for Amplify GR, a community development organization located here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Ashanti has a master's degree in both social work and education and has extensive administration experience in public, charter, and private schools. You know, during our time together, uh, we're going to discuss community development here in the United States and specifically the community-built model that has gained popularity and which Amplify GR employs here in the southeast side of Grand Rapids. So Ashanti, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Andrew. I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to be with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's start with kind of giving us a, a quick understanding of what Amplify GR does. Yeah. So Amplify GR is a nonprofit we are focused on neighborhood revitalization and community development in partnership with the residents and with other organizations and um, service providers in the Grand Rapids area. We have four pillars. And so it is, it is neighborhood revitalization and community development, but it is holistic, not a new approach or new framework or model for community development at all, but focused on creating affordable housing for people in the city of Grand Rapids and specifically mixed income housing. And maybe we'll get an opportunity to talk a little bit about that to um, also address strengthening of educational outcomes in our local neighborhood schools um, that, that still have some challenges and some struggles, have a lot of potential, have a lot of opportunity in terms of the students and the families that, that send their children to those schools, but they are not performing at the level that they need to in order for kids to get the quality education that frankly will break them out of cycles of, of poverty or so. And then also um, there is just overall community well-being. So the issues and under that umbrella or that pillar, if you will, it'd be issues that were identified by residents and neighbors at, um, like the public safety conversations and the relationships with our local law enforcement um, that continue to be challenging relationships for some, strenuous and, and difficult for some, but we believe are improving uh, in our local community. Also, uh, issues like, frankly, the lead poisoning issue, which has an effect on the community's health. And that's rooted in, you know, older, older residential stock, older homes, if you will, and sometimes residents not necessarily having the capacity to address those issues. Yeah, and my understanding is that mm -hmm. 
the the love level levels here in some of these neighborhoods that you're working in Grand Rapids are actually higher than what was found in Flint, Michigan. Is that correct? That is accurate. That's accurate. The, the, the issue in our local community is really more related to lead paint, more specifically, versus water, which was, which was obviously the issue in, in Flint, Michigan. But nonetheless, it is a significant public health issue. And uh, there are a number of organizations that are desiring and working diligently to tackle it and improve public health and community health. And we want to amplify their efforts and support their efforts because it is, it is compromising uh, people, human beings. With Amplify GR, I know that you partner with an organization called Purpose Built Communities, and yeah. they more or less kind of constructed a, a community de- development model of the same name. Um, you know, and from my understanding, that model came out of a successful experiment in a community called East Lake, located in Atlanta, Georgia. That's correct. So can you kind of please tell us like the story behind East Lake and, and its success? Yeah, it's, it's been several decades ago. Uh, but in essence, there was um, a Christian businessman, uh, Mr. Cousins, um, had read an article about they were, they were talking about the statistics of individuals who were committing crimes and how in actually in New York, those individuals were coming from three specific neighborhoods. Actually, it was a radius of probably six to mm-hmm. 10 blocks or so, wow. right, within a city. And so interest, they, they began to look into what's going on in the city of, of Atlanta. And they also determined that, that there was a similar dynamic of the, the number of crimes that were committed were coming from some very specific neighborhoods uh, in the city of Atlanta. The Eastlake community was uh, a housing project, you know, 20, 25 years or so ago. And frankly, it housed hundreds and hundreds of people, children, adults. It had low-performing schools, in essence, schools that were probably at the zero percentile, if you will, in terms of proficiency in the, in the world of education. They were plagued with a lot of the social ills and challenges, high, high homicide rates, 80% unemployment or so, human trafficking, drug drug trafficking happening in that area, a, a very unhealthy community or so, anecdotally from just spending time with people who who live in the city of Atlanta. We've had opportunity to hear many stories and, uh, and hear the narrative around what happened in the transformation of Eastlake. It was the community that you did not drive through. Um, 25 years later or so, um, that housing project has been torn down. They built mixed-income housing, so apartments and townhome units, um, some at the mar- at market rate, leasable at the market rate, and others at different rates for lower-income families and individuals to be able to access. And recognizing the importance of creating of, of what educational opportunity does in terms of breaking the generational cycle of poverty in families. They decided to invest deeply in the development of a high quality and excellent educational pipeline. Well, let's talk, you know, I know your expertise and and passion is is, is education for sure, right? Maybe talk a little bit more about what are you specifically doing in the area of education, um, you know, through Amplify GR's uh, programs. Well, our, our vision is to create an educational pipeline in this local community. There, there is frankly a deficit of early childhood education spots or slots for children. There are many home daycare and childcare providers in our local community. There are also several preschool classrooms at the local neighborhood schools. 
but this is an area of the city of Grand Rapids that needs additional early childhood education slots for children. Uh, and this has been the case for a decade or more or so. And many organizations, um, including ELNC and the YMCA and Kent ISD, have been able to increase the number of early childhood education slots for children in the greater Grand Rapids area. But the, but the needs still exist. So we are partnering with some local providers to increase those opportunities and even with some local investment uh, well, local and non-local investment folks who are really looking at early childhood education because of what the research suggests around how early childhood education positions children for success in K-12 education. So our goal is to develop two new early learning centers in the geography in 49507 and have those be high-quality early childhood education facilities that would then funnel into families and children. And we're talking about like pre-K, is that what we're talking we're about? We're talking preschool, but we're talking as early as six weeks of age. So, you know, um, uh, the, the vision would be that as we are working in partnership to bring business and job opportunities back to this local community or increase those opportunities, that people would then have a high quality early learning center where they could take their child and their child would be learning, but they'd be nurtured and cared for very well. And for existing home-based or church-based or community-based providers, our vision uh, is to come alongside those folks and support them as well in those other settings uh, and then equip that and, and create a movement in the early childhood space that then funnels into higher performing neighborhood schools. Because the reality is if we are not seeing children learning in schools at the levels that they should be learning, we are setting children up, frankly, for perpetuating some of the generational poverty and lack of opportunity that exists. Um, and, and in our city, we have, uh, in our city and frankly throughout the greater Grand Rapids area, we have some very high-performing school districts, you know, sometimes not even a mile away from our local community. And so we want to address um, the disparities that exist, the opportunities um, that exist by creating a higher quality educational community within uh, the neighborhood schools um, or so. Do you think the, the difference between the schools that are simply a mile apart, is it, is it a difference in resources that makes a difference or is it a difference in something else that really makes the difference in higher, you know, higher um, levels of education being attained? What's, what's the main factor? Is it resources or something else? I, I think as you look at educational outcomes of local schools in the city of Grand Rapids and outside of the greater Grand Rapids area, it begins to boil down to socioeconomics, mm -hmm. frankly. Yeah. And so the socioeconomics of the community tend to follow in terms of student achievement. Mm -hmm. Where you see higher socioeconomics, you see higher student achievement in the local or neighborhood schools where you see lower socioeconomics or uh, you see lower uh, achievement in the schools. Um, that is, that's a broad brush, answer, sure. right? Yep. Because there are high-performing, low-income children right. that attend our local schools, um, and then there are low-performing, high-income children that attend Absolutely. those schools. So um, that's a broad brush, but they tend to follow socioeconomics, which is the reason why uh, economic empowerment has to be the priority for our local community in terms of, you know, not just providing people jobs and a livable or sustainable wage, but also providing 
business ownership opportunities because there are there's a lot of great ideas and a lot of vision for business that exists in our local community. And so our goal is to partner with folks and to empower folks in terms of business ownership, if you will, um, and enterprising uh, in our local community and have that and have that ownership reflect the diversity of the local community. And how, how do you guys, I know that's, uh, you know, the fourth area that you're focusing on, that business and enterprise. So how will you go about, you know, really um, making those enterprises and that possible? Is it is it through grants? Is it through, um, you know, loans? Uh, what do you guys envision there? Well, I well, you know, what I'll do is I'll start with the jobs and the economic opportunity. One of the things that we're doing is as we are working and cultivating relationships with businesses to come back to this community, frankly, uh, we are asking of them uh, that they agree to 30% of their employees being um, hired from our local community or from the zip code. And so um, there has to be a a commitment to local hiring. Um, We are also asking those businesses, well, we we are expecting and asking those businesses to also be friendly to folks who are maybe returning citizens, if you will. So individuals that may have some level of a criminal background or, or so, uh, because those individuals also have tremendous, uh, sometimes tremendous capacity or so, but they need another opportunity, yeah. right? They need a chance. And so that's what we're asking for from local businesses. And we're beginning to see some success where, I mean, our goal is 1,000 jobs. We're at about 10%, <laughs> but we're, we're, we're a pretty young organization right now. So there's almost 100 new jobs that have been added to the area. And we are wanting to see that double plus in 2019. And within the next decade, we want 1,000 new jobs. Now, those are the jobs. Then we're also trying to work with um, several entities who are who have already been in the work of cultivating entrepreneurs in the city of Grand Rapids to bring to start 35 new businesses, and those 35 new businesses, reflective of the racial and ethnic diversity, if you will, of this of this side of town in the city of Grand Rapids in terms of ownership, because we have heard from people that they they don't desire to see this boom in business and this boom in um, economic opportunity that has happened in certain parts of our city, but that is not reflective at all of the diversity in terms of business ownership, et cetera, that exists in the city. Yeah. Well, that that kind of rolls into kind of my next question. So Mm -hmm. I know you guys have been around for roughly two years approximately, and you kind of rolled out an introduction, you introduced yourselves through town halls to people in the community and whatnot. And I know there was a little bit of a pushback from some people in the community, some people from without, without right, right. Um, <laughs> that weren't in the community as well. You know, a lot of the concerns were really regarding gentrification, which is a you know hot topic, not only in Grand Rapids, but really throughout the country. So firstly, like, how would you define gentrification? I think it's something that we throw around, but a lot of people may, may not have a tangible, good definition of it. Mm-hmm. And just so we're on the same page. And then you know, how has Amplify GR tried to avoid, you know, some of the negative ramifications of gentrification? Yeah, I'll share some specific, because of my work with the local schools and my understanding of the dynamic that's happening in our our three neighborhood schools, K through eight, K through 12 schools, if you will. One of the things that we hear from the local schools is that some of the difficulty in 
stabilizing children and improving student achievement outcomes is because of the constant movement of families, if you will. Mm -hmm. And the movement, uh, and what I mean by movement is them literally moving house to house or apartment to apartment, et cetera. Um, And so our goal is to provide stable, affordable housing within the local community to hopefully stem some of that tide. Frankly, in response to folks who um, who would say that you know Amplify GR is, is is an agent of gentrification, it's just simply not true. We, frankly, are working to stem that tide through investing in local homeowners, um, through um, cultivating partnerships uh, with the local schools, and helping um, to stabilize families through the efforts that will come in the development of several affordable housing um, units in the Boston Square, Oakdale area, also in Madison Square, Cottage Grove area or so. So what Amplify GR has, has done, because gentrification actually has, it, it, its its definition is, um, well, it depends on who you're talking exactly. to. Exactly, <laughs> well, I think exactly. And so what we have said is we've decided to talk more about displacement. If Amplified GR did not exist, people would still be being displaced in the context of the city of Grand Rapids. We've seen it. We've seen it on the news, et cetera. Mm -hmm. There are organizations like ICCF and many others who are attempting to create uh, and working in partnership with other organizations and um, local funders in the donor community to create those affordable housing, stable housing. We talk about displacement more. And our goal is is that families would not be displaced if they want to continue to live in their community. And many people desire to continue to live in their community. And it is already a mixed-income community, right? About 49% home ownership or so. Uh, Professionals, you know, educators and folks who work in the medical field, et cetera, live in in this community. And then there are also pockets of poverty, right? And people who are uh, renting properties, and sometimes, uh, frankly, experiencing skyrocketing leasing and rental rates. So our goal is to work with, uh, well, first of all, we've worked with several entities to acquire a whole portfolio of homes in the community so that those could be permanently affordable housing for folks in our local community. So we're working with several organizations to continue to acquire those properties when we discover that those, you know, there was an out-of-state entity who owned several hundreds of properties in the city of Grand Rapids, and the rents were skyrocketing for those properties, and those properties were not being cared for and not being invested in either. So we are trying to address that issue in partnership with others, but also um, engaging now in looking at um, equity investment and um, the potential investment into the building of several units, potentially hundreds of units of properties that are affordable housing uh, units and opportunities for folks in our local community. That's really good. I think framing the the whole conversation in terms of displacement Mm -hmm. versus gentrification, which again means many things to many people, is a good way of going about it. Because that's ultimately what people are concerned about is displacement. People within the community being simply forced out because of higher rent or higher property taxes. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's good. And Andrew, I, I only avoid <laughs> defining the term because in different contexts, 
gentrification is seen as a positive, right. depending on who you're talking right. to. Right. So we talk more about displacement, um, sustainable, affordable housing for folks in our local community um, versus that term necessarily, because it, it just it's just subject to whoever's uh, sharing or, or or their perspective, if you will. Well, I actually kind of want to take a step back here and just look at this, the whole kind of our whole discussion here from a, a historical perspective and mm-hmm. really ask, you know, how did we get here? How did we get to this point yeah. where, you know, in so many cities across the United States, we ended up with, you know, a lot of deeply um, under-resourced and segregated communities. How did that, uh, how did that occur? It began with, frankly, um, Segregation legislation, frankly, uh, and this whole concept of redlining. You know, we talk about the book The Color of Law uh, by Rothstein, and um, there were policies that our government enacted decades ago that created conditions uh, throughout the United States in urban and other areas where. Uh, and this is in both the South and the North. This is like- in the South and in the North that created conditions where we concentrated poverty. And thus, we came up with these, the term ghetto, if you will. Uh, but it was concentrated be- along race lines as well. And so um, the situations and, that we see in many cities throughout, throughout the United States where poverty remains concentrated and those communities tend to be communities of color, if you will, predominantly uh, African-American and or Hispanic Latino people, the, the, what we see now is a result of those policies. We hate to say it, but it, frankly, it was a successful strategy, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're talking about this, this, the concept of redlining, if you will. It was literally the practice of, on a map, drawing red lines and saying that certain areas and certain neighborhoods were for uh, people of color, and other areas or so were not for people of color. And that, and the legislation um, and the ability to purchase homes outside of those areas was extremely difficult, even if you were a person of color of higher socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is, that, has, that is the history of our country. And frankly, that is also the history that has led to some of the conditions that exist in the city of Grand Rapids. This, the, this, um, this powerful uh, memoir book written by a person who lived in Grand Rapids called A City Within a City. It was, it's probably our most recent articulation of the history of African Americans in particular in the context of the furniture city, Grand Rapids. But it, 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 it shares a lot of the stories uh, but also the historical context of what has happened in the journey for African Americans to um, live within this context, if you will, of segregation uh, in West Michigan and specifically in this city. Yeah. So, last last question: mm-hmm. What are you? What do you think uh, amplifies top, you know, two or three lessons are that you've learned this last two years in your guys' existence? Yeah, that's a great question. I think Amplify learned a number of things. You know, when you are building relationship, trust, or casting a vision, it is important to deeply engage with um, the folks that would be impacted by that vision. I think we've also learned that 
that deep level of building of relationship and sharing of information and cultivation of ideas and or the vision doesn't happen um, successfully in town hall meetings. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it probably happens more successfully on the ground in people's homes, over a meal, in churches for sure. We are learning a lot about um, what people value, what, what the people and the residents of our communities prioritize as important, wanting to align our work as much as possible with the priorities that and the solutions that come from the residents and the people in the community uh, and not go around them or um, get ahead of what they desire for their community, for their children, for their neighborhood. Thank you, Angie, Excellent. for this opportunity. Yeah, thank you, Ashanti, for being yeah. with us. Looking forward to your talk here in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. Thank you again. As always, thank you for listening. To learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, visit our website at acton.org. If you want to reach our podcast team here at Acton, email us at rfa at acton.org or leave us a message at 888 888- 705-4180 to give us feedback and to let us know what you think of the show. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to swing over to iTunes and leave a review and rating. This episode is produced by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Nathan Moore.